the Diary of a CTO podcast. Sharing the secrets of successful CTOs. Brought to you by Trimor, the home of technology recruitment. Hosted by Guy Bevington. Cool, so Ben, a huge welcome. Thank you for, uh, for being here with us today. Um, so Ben, you are currently the, uh, the CTO for Onto. Um, and Onto is uh, an electric vehicle subscription company. Um, before becoming CTO, you uh, fulfilled a number of senior engineering positions at uh, a number of other uh, high-profile brands such as uh, Capita, uh, Gusto, QuickBooks, uh, now part of um, Intuit. Uh, so clearly, you've got a proven pedigree as a, uh, a revered engineering and, and tech leader. And uh, I personally have been very much looking forward to today's episode because, uh, as you know, Ben, from our previous chat, I, I am a uh, an onto customer yep, um, yep. of yours. So, um, yeah, really looking forward to uh, hearing more about your role and, uh, you know, some of the no doubt challenges uh, you faced along the way and, and some interesting projects that you're tackling uh, over there onto. But before we, uh, we get... Onto that. See what, see what I did you. there. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about you. So um, your your background and uh, and ultimately what sort of led you into a position of, of tech leadership. So yeah, if you'd like to give us a bit of an overview of your your background, that would be uh, superb. Perfect. Yeah, certainly will do. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. Great to uh, great to be here. And yeah, certainly uh, certainly looking forward to the conversation. As I know you as a uh, customer can talk in detail about how you uh, you know what you love about Onto as well. So uh, and I will. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think you're right. I've um, been a CTO at Onto just under two and a half years now. Um, joined the business as they were going through a Series B funding round and, and kind of really looking to, 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 I guess, grow and scale their, the organization. And so uh, it's been a very interesting couple of years. I think uh, probably some of the most uh, challenging years in the automotive sector from uh, supply shortages to chip shortages to... Uh, the challenges of coming out of COVID. So it's certainly been a very interesting couple of years working with with Onto. But over that time, we've, uh, yeah, we've definitely put in place, a, a, you know, grown the team, put in place some really great ways of working and uh, kind of put help, hopefully put out there some really great features for our uh, for our customers. Um, my uh, my background is is very, I guess, traditional in a sense. I came from the, uh, the engineering background, did a computer science degree back up in York many years ago now. Um, and uh, during that degree, found myself in a, in a placement year and um, actually ended up working for Lehman Brothers during that placement year, working on their uh, fixed income credit trading platforms. And um, I guess I saw that as a really great interview, if you like. I'd spent a year there. I'd enjoyed it. They'd enjoyed working with me and, and ultimately got an offer to join them back on their, uh, on their graduate scheme. And uh, as many of you might remember, two th- that was 2007, 2008 was yeah, a wasn't, seminal year. It wasn't your fault, was it? I, I hope not. I hope not. It's uh, yeah, not 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 been tracked back to me yet. But uh, you know, let's see. It's uh, so yeah. Two thousand and eight was definitely a, an interesting year. At the end of my graduate scheme year, um, I was actually uh, on what we called early support that day on that Monday morning, and uh, came to the office. Saw a uh, photographer stood outside the office. Walked into the office. Hadn't really looked at the news at this point in time. Um, my boss and my boss's boss talking to each other in the middle of the floor, and I think I've come to realise that's probably not a good, uh, yeah, not a good sign. sign. And this is like I don't know seven thirty in the morning, so pretty, yeah, pretty early. Mm. And uh, yeah, ultimately we found out we'd uh, we'd gone into administration on that day. So wow. a very interesting start to my career, but very much a 
you know, an engineer at that stage. And, and yeah, as you said, I've uh, kind of gone on that journey and, and, and in my next role kind of went through that journey from engineer to technical leader to, to people leader. Um, and uh, yeah, I've never looked back since. Fair do. So you were there literally at ground zero of the uh, of the global meltdown. I did yeah. not know that. It's, uh, it certainly gives you, you know, it certainly gives you a different, um, I guess, reality check when, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of suggest things like startups are more risky or there's more challenges there or these sorts of things. I kind of go, well, I worked for a 150-year-old bank and unfortunately that went bankrupt in the first year of me working. So, you know, yeah, it's yeah, it's kind yeah. of a little bit, a little bit, you know, can 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 be varied in terms of the experience there. Yeah, very true. So I guess you've obviously worked for, like, say, big, bigger uh, financial institutions like Neiman Brothers um, and then gone on to, you know, companies like Gusto, on to. Um, have you, uh, what, what was important to you, I guess, when considering an opportunity as to what kind of company you, you joined? Yeah, I think I think over time it's probably something that that I've matured and, and changed in. I think you know when I was an engineer, you were you I think you were very much definitely looking at the problems you were solving, what actual code you were going to write, the technologies you were going to work with. Um, and I'd say you know a lot of those things in terms of technologies and those sorts of things become very unimportant to me now. I'm you know I've I've worked in various different technology stacks, and frankly, I don't see it being that much of a challenge to to move between them. You can still ask the same uh, the same questions. Yeah. I think what you know what does what is important for me is is definitely the um, the culture of the organisation. I've worked in some organisations where I've really got on well with the culture, and other organisations where I perhaps haven't gotten on as well with the uh, with the culture. And that certainly is something that that you know not only draws me in, but then keeps me for the long term. And I think uh, the important things about that culture is um, you know ultimately somewhere that uh, uh, it, it creates a great place to work for people. And you know I. I've been reflecting over the last probably the last six months, nine months about what my what my purpose in my career is outside of working for the organisations. And one of the things I've I've certainly come across is uh, this idea that my purpose really is to uh, to create the environment that allows people to do the best work of their lives. And so I think that's really what I'm looking for in a in a culture and of the, the values that an organisation creates. And uh, and that's probably the strongest thing that draws me in. And then secondly, I think it's very much about the challenges that that organization will will have. I'm uh, I'm certainly not in a position where I'm looking for, if you like, a, 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 an easy ride. I think challenge brings growth. And certainly growth is a very important value for me and something that I uh, I certainly seek out in those roles. Cool. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's uh, it's great to hear that you, you've sort of got that visibility, I guess, uh, around what's important to you as a leader and, and ultimately, you know, because uh, let's face it, you know, not everybody that's a fantastic engineer will make it into leadership or really wants to make it into leadership, yep. you know. Um, so um, talk me through for you then, what would you feel are the, you know, in your leadership style, which feel are the, the, the most valuable qualities and traits of a leader and, and how do you enable people to do the best work of their lives? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, I, I I look at some some basic principles, I think, when I when I think about this. And I think, you know, one of the areas I get uh, a big piece from is the kind of uh, Daniel Pink drive book, Autonomy, Mastery, Purpose. Yeah, I think I think there's Very a good. lot of truth in terms of those those three aspects. And I do base a lot of what I do around that. And, yeah. um, you know, autonomy, I think is extremely important for for individuals. And so I think about that in terms of setting people problems to solve rather than giving them solutions. Mm. Um, I never see my teams happier than when they're working with other, with stakeholders to understand what this problem is and how they can solve it. And I probably never see them more disappointed when somebody says, hey, look, I just want you to build this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's across engineering, product design, any of the disciplines that, that kind of sit within the team. Mm. I think on the mastery front, I think, um, you know, we're lucky enough to work in a, in a technology 
um, environment where it's constantly moving, it's constantly changing, and, and growth and learning are a really important aspect to uh, to that. And I think we, you know, we we're lucky that most of the people who come into to, to their roles really want to grow and develop and, and scale themselves. So they want to be masters of that environment. And I think it is important to create an environment that recognizes that's important. Mm. Now, I think it's fair to say I've also worked for high growth startups, companies that move very quickly. And so there's always a, there's always a balance. Mm. But it is definitely important that you allow people to have that that feeling of mastery and, and, and find a way so that they can they can succeed with that. Mm. And then on the purpose front, I think, you know, a lot of that purpose perhaps comes from uh, the organization they're working for, the problems that we're solving. I'm very lucky onto that I think our our purpose, which is really to, to kind of help that transition to EV um, vehicles, is is something that people believe in a lot. I think we've hired a lot of people who have, uh, you know, want to work in, a, in a, an industry that's doing good for the world. And so we've been able to certainly attract people um, much easier than I have been in, in, in some industries that are kind of similar size of similar size of organization. So I think that's certainly important for people. But I also know people who who get their purpose just from solving the problems that they're doing on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't really matter what the industry is. And that's also, I think, perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. Very good point. Um, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that damn pink um, book. I remember watching a video on YouTube probably about 10 years ago now. It was like... The, uh, the kind of pencil drawing. Have you seen it? Yep. Pencil drawing. And it actually like really hit me like a bolt, bolt out, of, out of the blue of, you know, actually really that is what strong leadership is, isn't it? And uh, it's sort of a bit counterintuitive really that historically there's been that view of leadership is being prescriptive, it's being authoritative, it's sort of telling people what they need to do. And actually I think you're dead right about that autonomy piece I think is is one of the most important things, um, you know, for a, for a strong leader, but um, but it's also really interesting how I think that transcends a lot of industries as well. I can totally relate to your examples there within tech, but it, it actually feels as relevant and as current in kind of a, a recruitment environment mm. as well. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a very good sort of bedrock of uh, of strong leadership in my opinion. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think we can you know we can recognise that this has changed quite a lot over the past probably 15, 20 years. It's it's not the way it used to be. And I think there's some organizations that have bought into that and changed, and there's other organizations that haven't. And ultimately, as you, as you speak to those organizations and perhaps apply for roles at those organizations, you realize where they, you know, where they sit on that spectrum. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I think, you know, it's, it's to really achieve something special and achieve, I think, scale, it, it, that autonomy piece, I think it's really, really important because I think you can, you can obviously achieve a certain amount by telling people what to do and getting people that are just very, you know, listen to you and actually obey but actually to really go on and achieve something special and kind of create a business which is sustainable and organic and you know i think it is so much about you know allowing people to be creative allowing people to have that autonomy and input on an individual level um and i think you're dead right certainly in the recruitment space anyway there's certain companies that have really adopted that and i like to think true north is absolutely one of those businesses but there's um a lot of the companies which shall not be named, which still have this very draconian kind of, you know, mentality to don't think for yourself, just shut up, sit there and do the job. And, it, you know, fail to see how that's ever going to scale past a certain point, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I totally agree. Cool. So as a tech leader, you, you sort of talked, spoke about development there and, and look, obviously the world of technology is developing at an unbelievably rapid pace. I think it's fair to say, um, you know, if we just look at the last couple of years alone, um, as a CTA, I'm always really interested, especially people like yourself that have come from that engineering 
background, we've clearly had a strong understanding, um, you know, of, of engineering principles, and that obviously has allowed you to to progress into the CTO role. Um, at some point, I suppose you take your hand off the tiller a little bit of being too close to the coalface technically and obviously now start maturing your skills in other areas. But how do you remain current as a CTO? How do you sort of keep on uh, track with the emerging trends in the market? And I suppose to that end, you know, what are you most excited about in the world that we live in now in terms of of some of the emerging trends um, technically? Yeah, so I think, think, you know, staying in touch because the industry is moving so quickly has always been tough i think you know it's tough for engineers i i, I often joked when uh, you know when i was a when i was an engineer i pretty much was full stack because you had to be at that point in time nowadays i'm not sure how our front end engineer sticks stays up to date with every single framework library and thing that kind of pops out there so it's just, just very difficult yeah i think my method has always been a, a kind of a combination of things i think first of all it's it's um I think certain newsletters, articles, places to to, to kind of read things that I've uh, I've become uh, I guess used to reading. So I think InfoQ is a great kind of technical resource. They put some great kind of web um, uh, kind of newsletters out there that allow people to get far more uh, kind of insight, and it allows me to kind of almost flick through and see kind of what's what are people talking about. Where do I perhaps want to dig into deeply? Mm-hmm. I think as I've moved more into that uh, CTO role and more of a cross-functional leader, it's it's uh, you know things like HBR has been a um, Harvard Business Review has been a much a more frequent reader of things like that articles that pop up in there. Um, I think there's certainly from the startup community there's a lot of kind of startup newsletters that are particularly interesting to to do. So I think just broad is probably the the main way. I think I probably have to stay far more broad than deep these mm. days because it's just impossible to go deep in all the all the different topics. Of course, yeah. Um, I think in terms of uh, you know in terms of what excites me and what what am I uh, uh, yeah I guess excited about it's very much. Uh, I mean, AI is the big topic, isn't it? I mean, if I didn't mention AI, then uh, we <laughs> wouldn't we, be a podcast. It wouldn't be a, you know, no, wouldn't be a tech we, podcast. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think you know AI is an you know, interesting one for me. I think I I in general I'm an optimist. Um, but I'm also, I think, a realist, and, and therefore I do understand that there's the potential to do a lot of harm, but also the potential to do a lot of good. And I hope that we we work our way through this, and I hope that we get to a position where, you know, this really truly does kind of power the next industrial revolution, if you like, and kind of takes us through to that next level of productivity and, and, and ultimately transforms a number of jobs, which um, probably never were as efficient as they uh, as they could be. So I really, I do have a lot of hope for AI. I think I also understand how early we are and, uh, you know, I think I'm, uh, you know, uh, I think I have a broad terms of uh, experience and, and, and look, outlook at this when I look at things that I see online, I see people talking about it and I see the positives and I also see the negatives and I think there is a you know, a big marketing piece around this now. If you're not saying that you're an AI company, you're not getting an extra zero on your valuation. Absolutely. You're not getting, you know, you're not getting out there, you're not getting kind of invested in by VCs and there is a, you know, this was a, well, this is a pattern that I think we've seen before with crypto and blockchain and those sorts of things. And I, I think, you know, my, my view is we'll go through some of that again. And uh, if you like, on the path of development, we'll go to the trough of disillusionment at some point And we'll realize that <laughs> yeah. there's, you know, there's, yes, there's positivity here, but we also need to kind of work through this and make that make that work at scale. Yeah. Um, I think what, you know, what one of the areas that I am particularly excited about in terms of, a, of an AI perspective is probably the you know, I don't think AI will replace the need for talented technologists, but I think it can massively augment their jobs and remove some of the boilerplate that, that happens. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, the last couple of years, especially at Onti, we've been exploring a lot of 
low-code automation tools. And, and I think that's one of the things that's helped us to, to, to go faster in certain areas that we wouldn't be able to with, without um, you know, a bigger team or more engineers. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what excites me is that uh, the challenge with these no-code tools is fitting them into everything else that you, that you have in your stack, making them work, making them have the same levels of resilience that perhaps some of your high-code or, or you know, full-code tools uh, uh, do. And I think AI can really kind of help to, to bridge that gap. It can really help us to, to kind of remove some of the repetitive work. I never liked being an engineer and writing the basic code to create entities, to connect to databases, to do all that sort of stuff. And when I was an engineer, it, it was the Spring Framework that was doing a lot of work to kind of move away from needing to write that boilerplate code. Yeah. But I think there's still a lot of it gets written. And I think AI can really help engineers to, to remove that, that piece of their jobs. And yeah. I hope most engineers realize that's not really what they're paid for. What they're paid for yeah. is their brain and the problems that they can solve. So I really, you know, that's where I'm really positive about this. And I think yeah. we can we can make some great strides. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I look at it in very similar ways myself that, you know, there's no point sitting here saying that um, yeah, we, we are where we are now as far as technology and AI. And it's yep. only going one way, you know, it's yep. not going backwards. So rather than sort of fearing and worrying for the worst, okay, yes, of course, like I say, we do need to have a real strong focus and emphasis on the ethics part of it. Um, but fundamentally, the system will be using AI tools in a more efficient way moving forward. And, and I totally agree. Just want to look at it from a recruitment perspective. You know, I still feel that there will always be a need for human input at some point throughout the process, especially in recruitment, because I guess, yeah. you know, people people want to work with people and yeah. it's a people industry. So, um, but in technology, I also agree that, you know, technology, I suppose, is there to make life easier for people. And, you know, that's essentially what it does do. But at some point, there will still need to be that, that, that touch point of that engineer at the end of that and um, the output and sort of understanding, okay, this is how we use that in that certain scenario. And I don't think that context, I think we're very far away from that context ever being replaced um you know so uh, i look at it in a very positive light uh, as well um let, let's talk a little bit more about your role at onto at the moment then sure um and yeah i guess onto as a, as a as a service i mean i i certainly had never come across anything like it before before i started working with it in terms of i guess its level of simplicity but also flexibility um you know it's one of the, the real big selling points for me um, so talk me through, you know, what's it like being CTO there? And, uh, uh, yeah, I guess we'll get on to some of the, the sort of specific, unique challenges, no doubt, you face mm. in the world of the, the EV world at the moment. But, um, yeah, just as an overview, what's it like as the, as the CTO of a business like onto? Yeah, I think uh, I think the first thing I'd say is never boring. It's certainly a, certainly an environment where there is lots of change happening. There's lots of uh, challenges occurring economically. Lots of challenges occurring, uh, say the car industry wise. So it certainly keeps me uh, keeps me interested and gives us some interesting uh, interesting challenges. Um, my role is pretty broad. Onto I I um, although my title CTO, I also look after product design as well uh, as kind of the engineering, IT, and, and, and data, which you'd perhaps get as a traditional CTO role. Um, and I think, you know, what I've what I've really enjoyed about that and really loved about that is that actually, um, ultimately, you can only get, deliver great product by bringing all those things together. And so, uh, you know, one of the one of the things it does make simpler in the organization is we don't have the, the challenges or the politics of multiple leaders potentially pulling in different directions, yeah. which I've certainly seen in, in, in perhaps other organizations that I've worked for. Mm. Um, it, it comes with some challenges. I think the, the, the downside to that model is probably that... Uh, um, at some stage, you need to bring in people below you who have massive amounts of experience in that area because I'm never going to be the expert in all of those different areas, course, and therefore yeah. you have to work with those uh, with those experts. Mm -hmm. I think we've um, 
yeah, we've had a very uh, interesting couple of years, scaled the business a lot, grown the amount of cars that we have out on the uh, on the system. And I think the the interesting thing in a couple of my roles that I had is my um, this balance of digital and physical product. So uh, I had this at Gusto also. Um, Gusto obviously a physical recipe box company and, and, and on to obviously on the car front. And uh, that brings an extra level of, of interest to any problems you've got to solve because when it's a digital-only product, your your ability to fix problems or address problems is, is, is relatively easy. You can, you, know, you can fix the data, you can kind of fix the challenges, say sorry to the customer, compensate them if necessary, and then, and then kind of move on. Um, if we don't deliver a car on the day, that car does not arrive and there's no way to magically, arri- you know, magically arrive in, in, in kind of 10 minutes. We have to physically move a car from one place to another again, and that yeah. takes time. And so I think this does cause a, a, an interesting set of problems. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's been really interesting about Onto is uh, um, unlike many subscription businesses where your, your kind of interaction once you've done the subscription is relatively minor. So again, back to Gusto, um, the challenges at Gusto were probably in terms of how do you fulfill these boxes at scale? How do you kind of get the right choice of meals to people mm-hmm. um, but once the box arrives assuming everything's arrived in in uh, kind of satisfactory condition that's kind of done until that person orders their next box yeah with a car that car has lots of things that can go wrong with it so that could be uh, you know everything from tires breaking windscreens breaking keys getting lost insurance events happening damage occurring all of this stuff is quite messy yeah um, and so a lot of what we've been thinking about over the past couple of years is like how do we how do we truly transform this to make it really easy and simple? And I think some areas we've been successful in, some areas we're still definitely working on those. We're definitely not where we where we want to be because ultimately we do see ourselves as a, as a, as a service that um, people are paying quite a lot of money for. Mm. You know, it's probably one of the more expensive things in life that you're going to have after a house is probably a car and therefore Absolutely. there's a, you know, a lot of money that goes into that and therefore we do want people to feel it is a premium service. So we've done a lot of work in that. I think you know, some of the examples we could perhaps pick out in the last, uh, in the last few months. Um, servicing has always been a little bit of a problem because um, with servicing you, you essentially put that, that customer back into a different uh, a network outside of your control. We don't, you know, we don't do our own services. We send them to, to we send cars to garages. Okay. We try and do services when a car is between customers, but that's not always possible. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it gets to that point and a customer's got a car, has no intention of giving it up. We have to, we have yeah, to service yeah, yeah. that car. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we've been working with the RAC on is bringing a, uh, a mobile service. So we can service that on your drive. Um, actually, EVs are far easier to service, far less moving parts. True, Therefore, yeah. why couldn't we bring something to your drive to do that? And, mm. and this is a real kind of game changer, I think, because it truly means that you're not without a car for a whole day. You're not taking it to a garage, which is normally a few miles away, getting a yeah. courtesy car, coming home, going back later in the day, which is all just a bit of a faff, really. Yeah. So uh, I think it's one of the areas where we've tried to tried to transform it. Good point, yeah. I guess it's just uh, an extra level of convenience that you know you wouldn't normally necessarily have, would you, with um, on the servicing side of things? But uh, but no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously, it's uh, incredibly multifaceted. Uh, I can imagine the, the number of different problems you've got, especially dealing with such a complex physical product like a car as well. Um, like you said, it must be uh, must definitely keep you on your toes <laughs> and uh, lots of different things to uh, to think about. Um, but I'm, you know, since having had an EV, I'm definitely a big convert yep. and um i think i would find it difficult to to go back now not only from kind of the environmental impact and the fact you kind of feel genuinely a bit better about that uh but also just well and the one i've got as well i just really enjoy driving it yep. you know it's great great drive you know great performance and, and that sort of thing so yeah I'm a, I'm a big convert but the um the, the thing i'm kind of consistently hearing about the ev 
market. Um, it's been a lot in the, the papers recently. Is around the actual limitations around the charging infrastructure. Um, you know, both in terms of their efficiencies, but also the the number of charge points mm. and you know the, the speed of which they're being um, built and, and implemented into the network. So, what's your take on that side of things, and, and where do you where do you kind of see the biggest limitations, I guess, of of the, the EV world moving forward? Yeah, so I think I think you know charging is often called out because it's probably the one thing that people feel is most different from moving from petrol to uh, to EVs. And um, you know, onto I think I, I said earlier, one of our goals is to really help that transition, and therefore that um, that flexible subscription that we offer. And, and just to be clear, we kind of do it on a month by month basis, which means after thirty days, you can give the car back and say, "I don't want it anymore." So it's really it takes away some of that risk of of kind of trying this out, if you like, and really trying to to work out whether this works for you. I've been an EV driver since March 21, which is when I uh, when I joined on to. Um, and in that two and a half years, I can say that things have got a lot better and things have, have kind of uh, progressed, um, measurably so. Um, I think there's still, there's still challenges for some people in certain areas of the country or people have certain driving patterns. But all of this stuff is kind of, I guess, working its way through. So from a charging perspective, um, Personally, I charge at home. I'm lucky enough to have a drive and lucky enough to have a, you know, a place where I can take that car off-road, and, and that means that charging for me is particularly cheap. I have a very cheap overnight tariff that I, uh, um, that I use for charging my car generally. Um, so I think, it, you know, for me, very, very cost-effective, um, even though, you know, with our on-two vehicle, we actually get a, an inclusive charging as well. Mm. Um, I think where, you know, where people, I think quite rightly, probably get a little bit confused is charging is just complicated and it's new and there's lots of stuff out there and i think we're in a position at the moment where it's fair to say the media is not being particularly helpful towards some of the transitions that we're going through there's certainly a um there's certainly a line that being drawn there where um because we're going economically through a bit of a challenging time that the easiest thing to perhaps do is to say that some of these things are not working and to say let's not spend the spend the money on them and i think that's you know that would be extremely short-sighted if we went down that route to uh, to that we're, we're in a transition we need to get better and we need to invest in that transition over the next uh, you know over the next what it be seven years until 2030 when the when the government has mandated that we remove the sale of new uh, new petrol and, and diesel vehicles yeah it's not helped by um i think we have some big high profile names coming out there i think rowan atkinson put a article in the guardian a few weeks ago about how he was a car lover and would go back to petrol. I think then every claim he made in that article was then refuted by somebody else a, f- a few days later. And it, 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 you know, it really isn't helpful that we're kind of getting into this this war, I think, around it. Mm. Ultimately, one of the biggest impacts you can have on your carbon footprint today is to start driving an EV instead of a petrol and mm. diesel car. It's one of the biggest contributors to, to, to your carbon footprint that you can change almost immediately mm. because you can. You can literally walk away from that car and go and get a go and get a different vehicle yeah yeah um i think charging charging is a very interesting one i think what you have to get used to is really changing your behavior a little bit uh, and thinking yes. about things slightly differently that's a good point yeah um if you just approach this in the same way that you've perhaps driven a petrol car you may have some challenges mm. um i'm personally not the kind of person when i was driving a petrol car who would let the the um uh the empty light come on on my dashboard and tell me that i was about to run out of fuel yeah um, so maybe that helps me in this in this regard because I've never <laughs> I've never been used to that that sort of habit. That's a good point. Yeah. But there are certainly people who they won't fill up until they see that light come on, and when they see that light come on, they know they can go around the corner and they can fill up. 
That's probably not the case with a, with an EV. You probably want to be thinking of that 25% mark. Okay, it's time to charge. Where, where am I going to charge? What am I going to do? Because ultimately I need to do something at, at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, yeah, very very much depends on your, your driving habits, I guess. Some people who are just commuting 40 miles a day. Um, I've heard a number of stories of people buying hybrids and saying, well, I, I, you know, I've, I needed this to, to kind of, I guess, hedge my bets, hedge the risk of, of going full in. But I'm only doing 40 miles a day and I'm never using petrol. All you're doing is carrying around a massive uh, power plant in your, in your car that is ultimately not really getting much use and you've paid for it and other things like that. So, yeah, yeah. so it is, you know, it is, it is one of those things that I think needs to change. We, we still need to, you know, there are still challenges. We still need to do more. We still need to put more charge points out there. Um, I think everybody accepts that. And I think all the networks are starting to roll them out as, as quickly as they possibly, yeah, possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two, two great points you made there. I mean, one around the fact, you know, with an EV, you, you can actually charge it from home. So like I say, with a little bit of, uh, forethought uh you know you obviously can't uh fill up a petrol car as easily overnight from home yep. um and you know that's to my eyes one of the, the really uh, the big positives that you could literally pop it on the drive and you know the next morning you've got got full charge so yes it takes a little bit more organization like you say but um that obviously isn't doable um and the other thing is around, like you say, yes, I, I totally agree. We're in a transition period, but you know, EVs generally, they're still very much in their infancy. Yep. And you know, battery technology is still very early on. Um, it's incredibly impressive now that you can get a car that you know, literally a battery can take you like 300 miles. But um, I've got a mate who is um, a battery engineer for BP, and he was saying that you know, essentially. Uh, you know, one of the biggest gripes around the amount of time it takes to fill up a battery. Yeah, that's very much limited by the battery chemistry and the battery technology. Yep. But actually, like all standards across the industry now are working towards uh, a seven-minute charge. And obviously, I mean, even now when you take it to a supercharger, it's, it still feels quite quick. That you can charge it you know, from like naught to 200 miles in like half an hour, 40 minutes. Yep. Um, but but I guess if it gets to that point where we're talking like seven-minute charges, that then becomes a lot more computable and a lot more fathomable for people to think, okay, well, actually, that probably is quite doable. Um, yeah. And we're, we're probably only a matter of years away from you know, doing that. So, yeah. And there's a lot of very intelligent people and a lot of money going into solving those problems because people know how important that is for for the future. You know, Once we get a car that has you know 600 miles or 1,000 kilometres is kind of what I think a lot of people quote, that's ultimately seen as being if you like big enough for most people to do what they're ever going to want to do. There's absolutely, no point yeah. in having a battery bigger than that by that no, point. No, no, absolutely that. I mean, when do you ever, when do you ever drive, you know, longer than that in a, in a single hall? You don't do no. really. So, no. um, yeah, absolutely. So we're definitely getting to that quite exciting point, but like you said, you know, we've, we feel like, I think Tesla's definitely sort of led the way clearly and sort of forced the hand of a lot of other, uh, car manufacturers, but you know, there's, there's been a big play, a lot of investment, a lot of money gone into it. We're not going back the other way. So mm. rather than sort of moaning about, you know, uh, things taking longer. We all kind of all need to take a bit more of a forward-thinking approach on it and just, uh, yeah, commit, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. So um, talk, you mentioned obviously coming into, uh, onto you scale the team, you've kind of uh, built out the um, engineering and, and, and also the product side of the business, which I, I totally agree with your points there about, um, you know, uh, having the visibility over both products and engineering, I think, uh is uh yeah a great thing um but how do you do you take particular approaches when it comes to scaling technology uh, teams i appreciate every situation is different mm -hmm. and 
every uh, every company you've worked in, I'm sure, a different set of challenges. But do you have kind of a unifying uh, construct that you use to, um, you know, when you're thinking about establishing a team, setting up a, a tech function? Um, how does that work for you? Yeah, so I think um, coming back to some of the principles we talked about earlier, so ideally what I want to create is small autonomous teams to get really, you know, playing on that autonomous piece. So what that requires, I think, is a few things. First of all, it requires you to identify how you can make those teams autonomous. What area of the product or what product can I get them to own? How can I give them that that um, that autonomy, that that lack of dependencies on other areas of, uh, of the system or the people in the in the team? I think from a, a structural perspective, it's then about creating those those kind of teams around that. So all of my teams are cross-functional teams, engineers, product uh, designers, um, product managers. Um, they are, you know, we're aiming for a situation where we're creating a high-performing team with that. So I think something like agile coaching is a very important, um, or coaching in general is a very important skill set that I look to uh, to kind of bring into my teams. All my teams, I've I've always brought coaching in as a as a skill set. I think once you've once you've got that team, once you've allocated that that kind of area that they can focus on, it's then really about um, I guess getting to high performance with that team, and you know this scales pretty well. There's large organisations out there that are multiple, uh, you know, many hundreds of, of or thousands of engineers, and they have many squads out there. I, I think another area I really think about is like how we work as a team. So uh, what's interesting for me is what's the minimum amount of process and and uh, similarity I can ask for between the teams that means that we can operate successfully. So I'm definitely not a, a, a high process guy, but I understand there's some need for process once you start to get to multiple teams, once it starts to get more complicated, once it starts to become a bit a bit larger, and it really is how do I you know, how do I bring that down to a bare uh, a bare minimum? And uh, the things that I've found uh, have worked pretty well for us uh, onto in previous roles has um, been around coaching people to think better about what they're working on next. So I think most teams are pretty good at like, hey, this is what we're doing now. <laughs> Um, if I ask you what you're doing now and I want to understand about what you're doing now, I'm pretty, you know, you're pretty good at doing that. But what's coming next? And if that's coming next, how prepared do you have to be ahead of that to make sure that when you do pick that thing up, you actually know what's what you're going to do, what you're going to build, mm-hmm. how you're going to build that? And so um, with the teams that are onto, we worked on, you know, worked on this idea uh, in the early days of looking perhaps six sprints ahead and understanding what what's going to happen within those sprints. What do I need to be doing in those sprints to make sure I'm ready? And as the team gets more mature, as it gets more experienced, you can then start to roll back some of that process because actually they start to do the things automatically and they don't need to have that that kind of prompt those, um, you know, it's almost like the uh, um, the barriers on a uh, temp and bowling alley. They, they kind of nudges them back in the right direction and helps them yeah. to do the right things. And eventually you can take those away and they can they can be successful. Um so they're probably the three areas, the people, the team, the, the sorry, the people in the team, the, the um, ways of working, and then um, specifically how we split that team up from a, uh, from a domains or an area of the product perspective. Interesting. Yeah, I like the, um, the point about the visibility on, you know, what comes next. And do you think you, you take that approach because you, you have that sort of product mindset simultaneously as, as well as, you know, the engineering side of things as a CTO, you're actually thinking about the, the, the future roadmap of a product and is that something you feel is sort of fed from that? I, I think it definitely is. And, 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 you know, when you're in that position and that's your responsibility, you you have to quickly realise that you, you need to do that, I think, is the, uh, you know, is, is probably the truth. In the early days, it was probably a bit of a wake-up and then eventually you just realise that that's, that's what I need to be doing. 
Um, you know, I think one of the things that I've, I, I've, I still spend a lot of time thinking about and we still spend a lot of time working on is how we get, probably specifically engineers in this regard, how we get them to feel really close to the problems that they're solving, mm. to have great empathy with the, the, the stakeholders working on that problem and to take that accountability and ownership around that delivery of those pieces. I think delivery is a very difficult kind of skill. Lots of teams tackle it in lots of different ways. And um, I think it's one that often frustrates both engineers and businesses. Engineers would love to, to, to perhaps work more in a world where there's less focus on delivery. Businesses would love to work in a world where there's more focus on delivery. And it's how do you make that kind of work together? Because you know, with my engineering background, I, I understand the the challenges of engineering, that nothing is necessarily simple, that unknown unknowns crop up on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. But I also understand why uh, why my commercial team really do care about when this thing goes live because they've got lots of other things that are going to roll off the back of that and therefore there's a there's a true dependency there. So um, we've tried to tackle that onto by getting the teams to be a bit more cross-functional still. So I really want my each individual cross-functional engineering team uh, engineering product and design team really needs to work with the the other stakeholders so really make them become part of the team and my ideal goal is to get to a point where every team has representatives from every team that they've you know, every discipline that they've been working with that's where i'd love to get to but i think it takes a while to to build that maturity and to build that understanding that that's that's where you can get so we're probably about maybe halfway in that journey onto and i'd love to uh, to keep working on that fantastic yeah i love that i mean i really listen to you speak there i love the fact you've got a very sort of inclusive and holistic view of things as a CTO and, and I can see you know why you've been very successful in terms of achieving what you've achieved there so far and uh, yeah I absolutely will keep my eyes uh, yeah peeled and, and uh, riveted for the for the, the next stage of the journey okay. I guess um, but no Ben really really enjoyed the chat today I think it's been a fantastic episode and uh, really interesting to get a bit more uh, insight into uh, yeah what is an industry I think we're all becoming more and more um, you know, involved with as time goes on um, but I like to end every podcast with the same question, um, which is what has been your favorite piece of advice that you've either given or received throughout your career to date? Um, yeah, if you were to pass on to your fellow humankind, uh, what would that be? Yeah, e easy question. My most memorable piece um, is definitely a piece that um, my manager at the time, a guy called Des Matthewman, a guy who I, I consider a friend and, and a mentor now, gave me when I was going through that transition from being an engineer to being a, uh, uh, being a leader. Um, and he said, look, Ben, this, this IQ thing is only going to take you so far. You can keep building the IQ. You can keep being better or right about things. But ultimately, at some point, that's going to stop you from being able to progress any further. Mm. Where you've got to focus and where you need to kind of be developing now is on that EQ side, that emotional intelligence side. Mm. Because that's ultimately what's going to lead you to be more senior, ultimately going to let you to be paid more, and ultimately going to get you to be more valuable to any organization. And, and certainly that's something I talk about with pretty much every engineer or, or, or person going through that transition because it's, it's never proven more, uh, you know, more, more true than every day I kind of think about that. And every day my role now is purely about emotional intelligence. I very rarely go, have to go back to that, that yeah. IQ. So yeah. uh, definitely, yeah, definitely the most impactful. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic piece of advice and uh, I would totally agree. You know, I look back over my career with some of the best CTOs I've ever worked with and it, it is those people that have obviously got the foundation clearly from a technical perspective and they, they clearly have they know their chops there. But 
they're just incredible people very soft skills very good at the uh the, the emotional intelligence side of it as well and yeah i couldn't agree more on that front so uh fantastic well ben nothing more remains but to say thank you again for coming on uh really enjoyed the chat today and uh yeah wish you all the very best of luck with your uh, continued success at the on to and i will remain a loyal customer for a good good while to come i'm sure Perfect. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a, a brilliant conversation. Yeah, and look forward to more more feedback on how we can do better. Uh, I will make sure I provide some. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Good man. Take care. Bye for now.